Highland Park Ford Plant, Ford's manufacturing marvel. You should begin this tour at 91 Manchester Avenue. This is where John R. meets Manchester. You might want to pause until you get there. Okay, so I'm assuming you've made it to Manchester and John R. So you're looking at the main industrial center of the Highland Park Ford plant. The part of the plant on the very left that stretches back, some folks call that the H building. Keep that in mind because we'll refer to it later. Now let's get started. The Ford Highland Park site is probably one of the most important sites, not only in the Detroit area or the region or the state of Michigan, but the country and the world, because here is where mass production started. To understand what was so revolutionary about what Ford did here, you have to understand what manufacturing was like before this plant. Start walking briskly away from Woodward, so to the east, along the part of the plant that's here on Manchester. Your goal is to get to where this building ends, about 30 feet past where Brush Street meets Manchester. This walk should take about three minutes. So you've heard of the Model T, right? It wasn't the first car. It wasn't even the first car that Ford produced. But it was the car that he was producing in 1908 at his Piquette Avenue plant, less than four miles away from here on Brush Street. At that point, Ford's company was using stationary assembly to build Model Ts. All the parts were brought into one spot, and a team of workers would put a whole car together all in one area. I would say that that's sort of what kids do with Legos nowadays. You get a kit, and you put the whole thing together on one place, a stationary place. This process, stationary assembly, was the norm in manufacturing at the time. Some historians say it was a visit to a meatpacking plant that changed everything. Ford's top engineers went to Chicago to a packing house, so a slaughterhouse basically, where the workers would hang a carcass onto a, a chain with wheels where they would slide it from worker to worker to worker, each worker taking off the same cut of meat. Uh, Ford's people studied that and thought, why can't we just reverse that? And instead of disassembling something, we're going to assemble something. So that's exactly what Ford did. Here at this new Highland Park plant in the H building, which you saw at the start of the tour, Ford took the concept from the packing house and implemented the moving assembly line. So, instead of bringing all the parts to one place, the body of the Model T moved on a conveyor belt or a chain, and pieces were added to it as it moved down the line to the workers. The body moved, but not the workers. The workers stayed in their own place, and they became experts at one part of assembly on that. They might be the guy who puts the wheels on, they might be the guy who puts the steering wheel in, or the windshield. As Ford expanded production, he moved the assembly line so that it occupied the part of the plant that you've been walking past here on Manchester. When you get past Brush Street, I'll start to tell you about what the moving assembly line was like when Ford brought it to this part of the plant. But I have a hunch you're not there yet. So, while you're making your way to Brush Street, I'll tell you a little bit more about this plant. It was designed by Detroit-based Albert Kahn and Associates. They actually still have an office in New Center, though Albert Kahn has since passed away. They developed a way of reinforcing concrete that made it so buildings like this were virtually fireproof, which was great for industrial buildings. As you can see, Kahn also liked natural light, and windows like these became a staple of his designs. And between the construction of the Highland Park plant in 1909 and uh, the B-24 bomber plant, built for Ford in World War II. Albert Kahn and Associates, in that period, they designed over 1,000 buildings for the Ford Motor Company, 150 buildings 
for General Motors and 36 buildings for Chrysler Corporation and thousands of buildings elsewhere. So he's pretty famous for industrial design. Anyways, remember to stop after you pass Brush Street. You'll notice that this big building tapers into a smaller building. Walk just about to the point where the smaller building ends and stop. But keep listening. Okay, so if you look back at the part of the plant you just walked past, you should see three angular roof units sticking up. Look closely at the second and third ones. Those aren't tiles on top. They're glass panes. Remember I said Khan liked glass? Well, this place was nicknamed the Crystal Palace. So those are glass roofs. They actually run through the middle of these buildings, stretching the entire distance you just walked. The buildings are designed so there are six floors, then an open atrium under the glass roof, and then six more floors on the other side of that. The floor is like an interior wall, which means if you're peering inside the building through the roof, you could probably see the floors. You'd at least see large buckets hanging off of them. And if you look straight down to the ground, you'd see train tracks. So you're still on Manchester, just east of Brush Street, right? Now, start walking west, back the direction you came, toward Woodward. I'll try to explain how the moving assembly line worked in this part of the plant as you walk back. You'll have over four minutes to get there, so feel free to walk at a more leisurely pace this time. So a train, loaded with Model T parts, would actually pull right inside this building under the glass roof. They had a craneway that spanned this entire building, and the crane would follow the train. It would lift the, whatever was in the back of the train, and it would put it in these buckets that were on the sides of each floor, and that's how they distributed the parts to the workers. The workers then added the parts of the Model T's as they came to them on the assembly line. The line zigzagged through the building from top to bottom. And it started literally at the top floor. There were um, conveyors, there were ramps to every level, and of course it was uh, hundreds of miles of moving conveyors. And they would assemble something and then it would come down to the next floor and assemble something and come down to the next floor and next, until it got to the sky bridge where it would go across the sky bridge. And down a chute in the H building and that was it. Another automobile built. The moving assembly line made production uniform and super efficient. It is said that they reduced the time it took to assemble a Model T with station assembly from 12 and a half hours down to 93 minutes. They continued to perfect that to where they were down to a matter of minutes by 1924. The quicker Ford could produce cars, the more money he could make, which means Ford was able to do something revolutionary in terms of wages. The moving assembly line allowed Ford uh, to increase wages from $2.34 a day for a nine-hour day to $5 a day for an eight-hour day. On January 5, 1914, Ford announced that his employees would be eligible for a $5 workday. There were 10,000 people the next morning uh, at the employment office on Manchester. Right around where you're standing. It was like a mob of men, mostly immigrants, who'd come to this tiny Detroit suburb to get a job. I am told that it actually changed the whole migration um, immigration pattern of the world. Or at least it changed where immigrants headed when they came to the U.S. Because it was much different. Most of the people were going to New York or they were going to California. When the $5 workday came, most of the people were coming to Detroit to get those jobs, well-paying jobs. And a standardized workday, that was like a dream come true for many of these uh, hard-working individuals. When Ford raised the salary, he wasn't just being a nice guy. It was a strategic move on his part. It was very, very hard work. 
you know, they were expected to stand at a line in many cases for eight hours a day uh, with no brakes in the early days uh, and put parts on vehicles that were going by them uh, every 30 to 60 seconds. And so um, it was very, very monotonous, uh, very, um, uh, very, very tough. So people would get trained here and then they'd quit because it was such difficult work. By December of 1913, you had turnover of 380% in the Highland Park plant, meaning that you're going to have to hire 900 people or more to get 100 to stay a year. Quality and productivity went down. You were constantly training and retraining. Uh, you know, the, there's tremendous expense of bringing in new people all the time. So, to attract and keep the best workers, Ford raised wages, which meant... The person who was making the car would now have the ability to buy the car. So they were building their own market, so to speak, and that was a revolutionary idea. Um, the national parks, when they gave national landmark designation to this building, um, actually said that this building created the middle class. So you see, the things Henry Ford did here in this plant in Highland Park were big. The moving assembly line increased production dramatically. That enabled him to pay workers more, which led to the creation of a middle class who could then afford to buy their own cars. And as the ripple effect started here in Highland Park, Michigan, other ripples were made in other manufacturing plants around the world. I always get totally amazed, and I, I almost get overwhelmed that I live in a place that this happened in. And I want everybody, as we look at this, to say, wow, it, it, that's right here. I'm, I'm standing right in front of the building that kind of changed the world. In 1927, Ford seized mass production of the Model T. He produced tractors here for a few decades, but it really was never what it once was. Ford shifted the bulk of his production over to the River Rouge plant in Dearborn. As for this plant, a company called National Equity bought the plant from Ford in 1981. For Listen to Detroit, I'm Tori Ashford. And I'm Laura Herberg. In this audio guide, you heard from the Woodward Avenue Action Association's Debbie Shutt. And it started literally at the top floor. Fortifile Mike Skinner. And instead of disassembling something, we're going to assemble something. Motor City's National Heritage Area director and co-founder, Nancy Darga. I would say that that's sort of what kids do with Legos nowadays. And former president of HP DevCo, Harriet Saperstein. Here is where mass production started. Before you go, we want to hear your response to this story, right here, right now. On your phone, look at our website and click on the menu bar at the top of the page. From that drop-down menu, select Share a Story. It'll be as easy as leaving a voicemail message. What memories do you have of this plant? Or what stories have you heard about it? Did we miss any important details? Maybe you'd just like to leave a comment. If you have something to say, please click on the Share a Story tab now. This audio guide was produced by Laura Herberg, that's me, and Allison Swaim, with help from Posey Gruner, Noah Morrison, and Zach Rosen. It was funded in part by SoundCloud with in-kind support from 1019 WDET. We also received production help from Stephanie Zerwek and Ryan Noyes. Thanks to Brandon Polsick for participating in a test run of this tour. For more guides created by Listen to Detroit, go to our website, listentodetroit.org. While there, you can check out links to books as well as tours of Detroit led by people.